paid for this stone to be erected in homage to his brother in the Muse, and had written the lines of its inscription. This simple stone directs pale Scotia's way to pour her sorrows o'er her poet's dust. He stood quite still. There were others who could be visited here. Adam Smith, whose days had been filled with thoughts of markets and economics, and who had coined an entire science, had his stone here, more impressive than this, more ornate. But this was the one that made one weep. He reached into a pocket of his overcoat and took out a small black notebook of the sort that used to advertise itself as waterproof. Opening it, he read the lines that he had written out himself. Copied from a collection of Robert Garriach's poems, he read aloud, but in a low voice, although there was nobody present save for him and the dead. Canongate Kirkyard in the failing year is old and grey. The wee rosiers are bare. Five gulls lean white against the dirty air. Why are they here? There's nothing for them here. Why are we here ourselves? Yes, he thought. Why am I here myself? Because I admire this man, this Robert Ferguson, who wrote such beautiful words in the few years given him, and because at least somebody should remember and come here on this day each year. And this, he told himself, was the last time that he would be able to do this. This was his final visit. If their predictions were correct, and unless something turned up, which he thought was unlikely, this was the last of his pilgrimages. He looked down at his notebook again. He continued to read out loud. The chiselled Scots words were taken up by the wind and carried away. Strang present dool, rugs at my heart, lichre this guinea door. Here Robert Barnes knelt and kissed the moor. Strong present sorrow tugs at my heart. Treat this lightly if you dare. Here Robert Burns knelt and kissed the soil. He took a step back. There was nobody there to observe the tears which had come to his eyes, but he wiped them away in embarrassment. Strang present dool. Yes. And then he nodded towards the stone and turned round. And that was when the woman came running up the path. He saw her almost trip as the heel of a shoe caught in a crack between two paving stones, and he cried out. But she recovered herself and came on towards him, waving her hands. Ian, Ian. She was breathless, and he knew immediately what news she had brought him. And he looked at her gravely. She said, "Yes." And then she smiled. And leant forward to embrace him. When he asked, stuffing the notebook back into his pocket, right away, she said. Now, right now, they'll take you down there straight away. They began to walk back along the path, away from the stone. He had been warned not to run, and could not, as he would rapidly become breathless. But he could walk quite fast on the flat, and they were soon back at the gate to the kirk, where the black taxi was waiting. Ready to take them. Whatever happens, he said as they climbed into the taxi, come back to this place for me. It's the one thing I do every year, on this day.
You'll be back next year," she said, reaching out to take his hand. On the other side of Edinburgh, in another season, Cat, an attractive young woman in her mid-twenties, stood at Isabel Dalhousie's front door, her finger poised by the bell. She gazed at the stonework. She noticed that in parts the discoloration was becoming more pronounced. Above the triangular gable of her aunt's bedroom window, the stone was flaking slightly. And a patch had fallen off here and there, like a ripened scab, exposing fresh skin below. This slow decline had its own charms. A house, like anything else, shouldn't be denied the dignity of natural aging, within reason, of course. For the most part, the house was in good order—a discreet and sympathetic house, in spite of its size, and it was known too for its hospitality. Everyone who called there, irrespective of their mission, would be courteously received and offered, if the time was appropriate, a glass of dry white wine in spring and summer, and red in autumn and winter. They would then be listened to again with courtesy, for Isabel believed in giving moral attention to everyone. This made her profoundly egalitarian, though not in the non-discriminating sense of many contemporary egalitarians. Who sometimes ignore the real moral differences between people? Good and evil are not the same, Isabel would say. She felt uncomfortable with moral relativists and their penchant for non-judgmentalism. But of course, we must be judgmental, she said, when there is something to be judged. Isabel had studied philosophy and had a part-time job as general editor of the Review of Applied Ethics. It wasn't a demanding job in terms of the time it required, and it was badly paid. In fact, at Isabel's own suggestion, rising production costs had been partly offset by a cut in her own salary. Not that payment mattered. Her share of the Louisiana and Gulf Land Company, left to her by her mother, her sainted American mother, as she called her, provided more than she could possibly need. Isabel was, in fact. Wealthy, although that was a word she didn't like to use, especially of herself. She was indifferent to material wealth, although she was attentive to what she described, with characteristic modesty, as her minor projects of giving, which were actually very generous. And what are these projects? Cat had once asked. Isabel looked embarrassed. Charitable ones, I suppose, or. Elamusinary, if you prefer long words. Nice word that, elamusinary. But I don't normally talk about it. Cat frowned. There were things about her aunt that puzzled her. If one gave to charity, then why not mention it? One must be discreet, Isabel continued. She was not one for circumlocution. But she believed that one should never refer to one's own good works. A good work, once drawn attention to by its author, inevitably becomes an exercise in self-congratulation. That was what was wrong with the lists of names of donors in the opera programs. Would they have given if their generosity was not going to be recorded in the program? Isabel thought that in many cases they would not. Of course, if the only way one could raise money for the arts was through appealing to vanity, then it was probably worth doing. 
but her own name never appeared in such lists, a fact which had not gone unnoticed in Edinburgh. She's mean, whispered some. She gets nothing away. They were wrong, of course, as the uncharitable so often are. In one year, Isabel, unrecorded by name in any programme and amongst numerous other donations, had given eight thousand pounds to Scottish opera, three thousand towards a production of Hansel and Gretel, and five thousand to help secure a fine Italian tenor for a Cavalleria Rusticana performed in the ill-fitting costumes of 1930s Italy, complete with brown-shirted fascisti in the chorus. Such fine singing from your fascisti, Isabel had remarked at the party which followed the production. They love to dress up as fascists, the chorus master had responded. Something to do with only being in the chorus, I suspect. This remark had been greeted with silence. Some of the fascisti had overheard it. Only in the most attenuated way, the chorus master had added, looking into his glass of wine. But then again, perhaps not. Perhaps not. Money, said Cat. That's the problem. Money. Isabel handed Cat a glass of wine. It invariably is, she said. Yes, Cat went on. I suppose that if I were prepared to offer enough, I would be able to get somebody suitable to stand in for me. But I can't. I have to run it as a business, and I can't make a loss. Isabel nodded. Cat owned a delicatessen just a few streets away in Brunsfield, and although it was successful, she knew that the line between profitability and failure was a narrow one. As it was, she had one fault.